Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good to see you again. Yeah, same here. How are you? Well, I've made it so far. <laughs> which yeah, was glad to know that. Which was not, uh, you know, guaranteed um, the last time we spoke. Together, we can achieve incredible things. Europa skal stå stærkere i vores egen ret. Europa er vores fremtid. Du lytter til Altingets EU-podcast med din vært, Thomas Lauritsen. We never wanted to attack Russia. We don't want to, to have anything to do with Russia. All we want is what is ours. Sidste gang jeg talte med Ina Sofsun havde Rusland netop indledt en invasion af hendes land. Hendes søn var evakueret, hendes kæreste var taget i krig, og hun havde mistet kontakten med sin far. Nu er der gået et år. Ina er stadig i Kiev, og Ukraine er stadig under massivt angreb fra russerne. Yeah, we kind of uh, learned to live through this, even though I, I still don't want to accept it as a norm, because this is still a very scary and unpleasant reality. And I feel, if you ask me, uh, I feel like the whole year of my life has been stolen from me. Den 24. februar er det præcis et år siden, at Vladimir Putins regime lancerede en kæmpe offensiv mod nabolandet Ukraine. Jeg har taget en ny samtale med Ina Sofsun. Hun er økonom og politolog, og så er hun medlem af det ukrainske parlament. Men hun er også en mor, en kvinde, en borger i et land, hvor bomberne er ved at blive til hverdag. Velkommen til den her særudgave af Altingets europæiske podcast. Mit navn er Thomas Lauritsen. Altingets EU-podcast er sponsoreret af 3F, fordi Danmark fortjener færre journalistik om EU. It's now almost a year ago, on the night of February 24th, that Russia invaded Ukraine and war was back to Europe. One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I just come from a visit to Kyiv and I can report Kyiv stands strong. The situation for me and my family is uh, I would say better if that is the word we can use overall. But uh, my son mm. is in Kyiv now. We actually moved him back to Kyiv. He was evacuated to the west of Ukraine, so he never left the country, but he was on the west uh, with the relatives. Uh, but we got him back to Kyiv uh, in July, and he goes to school now in Kyiv. 
which in itself is a challenge because uh, with the constant air raid alerts, uh, they quite often have to go to the bomb shelter. My my dad is, is okay, <laughs> luckily. I remember three days when we couldn't get in touch with him and uh, the village was not under occupation, but was very close to the occupied villages and the Russians were shelling the village of my parents. So that was pretty scary. But uh, he and my mom, uh, they are back in Kiev region. So they have been there for since June. And my partner has been at the front line since February 24th. Uh, apart from the last uh, actually four weeks now, he came back uh, on a short rotation. So he's uh, he's actually in Kiev uh, uh, now as we record it, uh, but uh, he's waiting to be deployed back to the front line. So I would say that from all members of my family, who I'm most scared of is, of course, my partner, because uh, his, um, his life is constantly on danger. And, and um, both him and, and me having a break of him being here in Kiev for a couple of days has been a couple of weeks, actually, has been a relief. Uh, but I'm terrified of even thinking that he will have to go back. Russia's airstrikes targeting Ukraine's power grid have plunged countless people into darkness. Almost half of Ukraine's power grid, the entire nationwide power grid, is now offline. Ukrainians have been warned to expect power outages after Kyiv introduced restrictions across the country for the first time since the invasion by Russia. One of the things we learned throughout this year, actually, funnily enough, uh, that is what Clausewitz, a big uh, uh, strategist of war, is writing, is that one of the biggest characteristics of uh, war is uncertainty. And, and that is a very annoying part because I like to be certain to know for sure what I'm going to be doing. I, I like to have a plan. I like to, to, to you know, to, to think ahead and all of that. And hmm. suddenly it's all impossible. You wake up in the morning and you think that you're going to take your son to school. And suddenly the air raid alert starts and you are not taking him anywhere. Uh, and then suddenly in very pragmatic and very practical terms, like, I don't know if electricity will not go down like five minutes or now, you know, when I'm talking to you. Luckily today it probably will not, but uh, that is never for sure. But the parliament is, is overall working. So me, I'm continuing to work as a member of parliament. We still have our parliamentary sessions, which are not that often, but uh, once a week or once in two weeks, we still meet for one or two days to, to uh, legislate. So, so it's still quite a lot of legislatory process going on. And then, of course, lots of international work for me. So I'm continuing to do the international interviews, mm. uh, talking to MPs in different countries um, and so on and so forth. Joining me now via Skype to talk about the most recent brutal attacks on Ukrainian civilians is Ukrainian MP Ina Sovson. I want to go straight to Ina Sovson. Well, joining us live now is member of the Ukrainian parliament Ina Sovson. Thank you for speaking with us here. It's been almost a year now. So you've actually lived in a country under attack for a year now. How does that affect your life? Do you, do you get used to it? I think you get get used get used is a bad word because then it becomes kind of a norm and I re, I kind of refuse psychologically to accept it as a norm but you kind of uh, know better what to do and understand the level of danger you are in much better when it all started 
every air raid alert uh, that we got, my heart would start bumping and we would rush to the to the bomb shelter and all of that. Uh, now we react much more calmly. We know what to do. We understand where the danger comes from to an extent possible in, in all of this situation. But I think that uh, we kind of uh, learned to live through this. I feel like the whole year of my life has been stolen from me. This is not how I wanted to spend this year, but uh, my whole year changed uh, because uh, Putin uh, invaded my country. How do you feel uh, when when you send your son to school? I mean, I also have kids, so I know how you worry about your kids. Yeah, I think every parent would would understand that it is very scary uh, to, you know, we all worry about our kids even under normal circumstances, right? But during the wartime, uh, it's, it's, it's another level of difficulty. I was debating with his father uh, whether to send him back to school or not, but he, he's pretty small. He's still in primary school. He's 10. He's in the fourth grade. For kids small like this, online learning doesn't really do the trick. He was, he's the unlucky one of those who, uh, for whom COVID started when he was in grade one. And he's in grade four. Mm. He didn't have a single year, a single school year, where he wouldn't switch to online learning at least one portion of the time. So we decided that, you know, for the sake of his education, he should be getting as good education as possible. Ukrainian schools are preparing bomb shelters for the new academic year. During air raids, hundreds of students and teachers will be able to take shelter here. In terms of uh, security, in, in our school, they do have a pretty good bomb shelter. Uh, so if he was staying at home and doing online learning, he would be staying in, in our home, in residential building. We actually don't have bomb shelter in our residential building. So if he were here and if we want to go to the bomb shelter because there is an increased, uh, I don't know, awareness that, I don't know, something very bad happening, we actually have to put our clothes on and to go to the metro station. But in his school, it's actually, from this perspective, it's actually safer because in their school, they actually just go down the basement without having to put their clothes on. And yet life in Ukraine after a year of war depends entirely on where Ukrainians are trying to live it. Russia failed to capture the capital, Kyiv, where those who haven't fled are... We talked about your own uh, personal situation and how you feel. Uh, what is your impression of the general mood of people in the Ukraine now after one year of war? I think it differs... I think that um, it differs based on your own situation because look, if you are from Kharkiv and you are being like, and Kharkiv is my native city, being being shelled by artillery literally every single day. Mm. So, so this is one situation. And then there are people in Uzhorod, which is the most western city in Ukraine, close to to Slovakia and Hungary. They don't even have the curfew. But then I would say mm. that there is another difference, which uh, I didn't realize up until recently. And I think it's that whether you are directly connected to war or not. Like for me, my partner has been at the front line from day one. So for me, war yes. was everyday reality. Every minute of my life, I was worried about him. And now uh, a couple of weeks that he has been here in Kiev, the first time since the big war started, it felt like I'm, I'm not that scared, like, you know, how do you call it? 
when, mm. when he's there, I'm, I'm scared to, to, to bones. It, it's just so scary that I'm always tense and, and always scared about him. And when he's here, I feel, I feel a bit more relaxed. But I think overall, everybody is, is extremely committed to victory. Uh, like I think the level of support for um, ideas of let's negotiate, let's make some, some peace. It's just very low now. Nobody wants that. We only want, want this to be over once and for all, which means victory for us. But at the same time, of course, people are getting very exhausted emotionally, physically, financially, which is also a challenge, right? For, for many, many people. Uh, many families mm. are split. Millions of families are split. It's difficult, but I would say that it also really depends on individual situations of different people. Let's shift the focus maybe a little bit to the international uh, uh, picture. Uh, during this year, billions in aid has been sent from Europe and the US. Um, does that help? It does, of course. Uh, look, if we didn't have friends like this, we wouldn't uh, be able to stand. The most important is, of course, the weapons that we're getting. That is more important than any money, because without weapons, we wouldn't be able to, to fight back and to, to liberate some of our territories. But then also the money that is going uh, to help Ukraine function. Uh, I think about half of our budget is now foreign aid which has never been this big a number. But uh, yeah, that is how we fund our education, our healthcare. That is, um, yeah, the way for us to survive. So it's uh, it's truly with the help of friends like, like the one we are lucky to have that we managed to survive. Germany has confirmed it will send Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine and allow other countries to do the same. There was this big discussion in Europe about whether to send modern tanks, and finally that decision was made. And now your president has just been uh, here in Brussels recently. Um, I saw him, by the way, uh, and he asked for fighter jets as something he said that you absolutely need now. Why is that? Well, uh, indeed, the tanks discussion has been very intense and very long. I have been part of that, of those debates. I was working a lot of with the German members of parliament since June, I think. So I think it became very public, this debate um, at the very later stages. But in fact, the negotiations have been very intense for, from the summertime. Uh, and of course, we need tanks. Uh, we still need tanks. I don't want to, for everybody to feel that this tanks discussion is over because we need bigger numbers, 14 tanks, uh, 14 leopards uh, to that Germany is sending. It is, of course, a ridiculously small number. Uh, Russians have thousands of tanks, so, so we need to be able to counteract that. But I'm happy the political decision has been made after all. Uh, but uh, the, the fighter jets, it's important because uh, otherwise you cannot, I mean, this just makes perfect sense. You cannot send your artillery uh, or, or your infantry in unless you, you have the, the uh, cover from, from the sky. And, and our soldiers don't have it now. So that is why we are, we are asking for fighter jets to be able to, and I don't want to scare everybody by saying the word go on offensive, because on our case, going on offensive is not going on offensive against Russia, is going on offensive to liberate our own territories. That is important to understand. We the never, point is not attacking Russia. Yeah, no. exactly. We never wanted to no. attack Russia. We don't want to, to have anything to do with Russia. All we want is what is ours. So that is why we need fighter jets to be able to to liberate our territories, but then also to be able to protect our um, energy infrastructure, our civilian infrastructure, because what they have been doing to our energy infrastructure since October, 
is just terrible. People living without uh, electricity for hours. Uh, I myself had, uh, I think the worst uh, situation was um, 72 hours without any electricity, which in my case meant no electricity, no heating, because I have electric heating. I live on the 14th floor, so going up and down without elevator. Uh, I have electric stove, so I couldn't make any food. Uh, so basically anything for 72 hours because they were attacking our energy infrastructure and because we cannot cover our sky properly enough. So that is why we're asking for fighter jets. We have freedom. Give us wings to protect it. You know, I, I think the, the discussion about fighter jets has just started and it will probably be a complicated one as well. And the argument against it that we are hearing, against giving fighter planes to the Ukraine uh, in, in the rest of Europe, is the worry of some governments that then we are moving very close to a direct confrontation between NATO and Russia. Uh, I just want to hear your reaction to that argument again. We've heard it before many times, but, but the argument this time is a fighter plane is something else. It's different. Somebody has to fly it into your country, and that somebody would be a pilot from a NATO country. So that's the argument, you know, against doing it, that we risk starting a, a, an all-out war between NATO and Russia. Well, truth be told, uh, you can use the same argument with tanks. Somebody has to drive the tanks to Ukraine. What is the difference there? And the reality is, of course, you cannot actually uh, fly uh, an, a fighter jet into Ukraine. It will actually be flown to Poland and then it will be sent to Ukraine by different means. It will not fly directly to Ukraine for, for multiple reasons. So, you know, I don't think that this gets Europe closer to war with Russia. For two reasons. First of all, it's it's not that big of a difference. What is the difference from that perspective of engaging by giving tanks or giving fighter jets? What is the difference? It's still Ukrainians who will be operating them. Not once, not once since February 24th did we ask for foreign troops on the ground or for foreign soldiers or European soldiers doing the work of our pilots. We always were saying we will do it ourselves. So I think that it's it's a matter of perception. That needs to change. But I also think there is another thing to remember uh, when people are saying that this Putin will see it as an escalation. Well, it doesn't really matter whether he will see it that way or not. The reality is that I think by now Putin understands he just cannot afford to go to war with the NATO member states. There's perception in the minds of the Europeans. But the reality is, look, Putin was saying that for him, the red line is Finland and Sweden joining uh, NATO. But now he doesn't say it anymore. He's like, okay, okay, yeah, whatever, it doesn't matter. You see, because he realized that if he cannot win against Ukraine, there is no way he will try to engage in direct war with the NATO member state. I think that this is important to understand. I think this is what even in Russia they understand now. But I guess the, the fear is that some, that he'll go crazy, you know, to put it plainly and push the button on a nuclear uh, war. Again, that fear has been there. And it's, trust me, it's not like we are not scared of that. We are not suicidal in no way possible, right? We all are fighting for our lives as much as possible. So going for the nuclear option mm. is not what we want in no way, because we would be the first victims of that. But I also think that this fear is, is now, you know, we take it more calmly. 
I think everybody understands that even if Putin goes crazy, he cannot push the button himself. There are at least 10 people who need to be involved. So I think even Russians are now, compared to the summer, they have toned down very significantly on this nuclear option. They have been playing with it over the summer, and then they kind mm. of, kind of started saying like, "Yeah, they say, we only do it if they attack our territory, and so on and so forth." So it, I think that they even they try to tone it down because uh, they they probably understand this is not a realistic option for them at this point either. We know the sacrifice that your people have endured for Europe. And we must honor it, not only with words, but with action, with the political will to ensure easier trade and with the fastest possible accession process. Lastly, I'd like to just touch upon the subject of the EU perspective, um, because when President Zelensky was here in Brussels, this was also something he stressed very much with the European leaders. And he said that he would like to see negotiations, uh, accession negotiations, open already this year. Um, why is that important, the speed of it now? It's, it's very important for all of us here in Ukraine to have hope for a better future. That we are going through all of this, not for nothing, but because we want our kids to be EU citizens and to have both EU and Ukrainian passport at the same time, you know, not just move out of the country and, and get a Danish or a German or French citizenship. Uh, so I think that having this hope and having this, this bigger image of a better future is something that is indeed driving all of us. We are doing that because we want a different future compared to what we have. And I think EU accession is kind of embodies this, uh, this image of better future. But from the political perspective, I'm also seeing that um, Saying that uh, some reform is part of EU accession or opens up potential for EU accession makes it easier to get things done in the parliament, in the government, and so on and so forth. So uh, uh, that is why uh, people are now even looking into EU legislation when they are pushing for some sort of legislation, because if it is like according to EU uh, acquis communautaire, mm. EU legislation, it suddenly becomes easier to promote those issues. So I think that in that sense, also having this uh, this EU talks is good because for us internally, this kind of um, eases up the process of, of changing the country. Because one of the questions being asked, of course, is, is it even possible for a country in your situation, a country at war, even with the best of wills, to make the necessary reforms and to, to reach the different targets that are part of, of a membership negotiation? Well, I think that um, there, are, I think there are different stages to this because one st stage, number one, is to have the proper legislation and regulation in place. And that is something that can definitely be done even during the wartime. As I explained, uh, we're still working as legislators quite intensely, actually, right? So we can You're set working up pretty fast, as far yeah. as I can see. Yeah, yeah, actually. indeed, indeed. Uh, so, 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 but yeah. I also understand that uh, passing legislation is one thing, but then actually implementing it is is another thing. And then there can be some things which we probably cannot implement while we are in active phase of war. But we at least need to make sure that we have done everything that we could have done uh, during the wartime and then getting into other stages as soon as we can. You know, uh, those are different people doing different things, right? People in in the military, they are fighting. 
But we as members of parliament, uh, those of us who are not fighting, we actually do have a few MPs who are fighting, but majority of us, we are not fighting. We can continue doing our job. And I think it's it's critically important that we continue out doing our job as much as possible, just like teachers continue to teach chi- children. You know, everybody have to do everything possible to make Ukraine a better place right now. And a military uh, side of things is one thing, but there is still lots of work for us to do on the civilian side, and we, we are just trying to do it. If we have a conversation like this again in one year's time, do you think your country will still be at war? I I don't give uh, forecasts anymore. <laughs> I think it's, um, it's very difficult to predict uh, what is to happen. I don't know. Putin can die tomorrow. And uh, yeah, we're going to have a big party then. But but oh, he can leave for 10 more years. I don't know. Or, you know, things can change uh, very rapidly. Look how we liberated Kharkiv region. It all happened in a matter of three days, right? The, the big region. So I think that th- this, this element of unpredictability is um, something that I don't want to m- make forecasts anymore. Of course, I don't want to be at war. Uh, of course, I want my life back. I want uh, everything that I have built for myself, for my family, to get back to normal. But um, I think we have to be prepared for anything. And I'm trying to pace my hope. Last question. Um, what would be your message to uh, the Danish people in at this point? Uh, what can we do? I can ask that question in another way. Uh, what can Danes do uh, for you? Well, I think that number one is just don't forget that there is war taking place in in Europe, uh, and uh, the war that was completely unjustified. Just another country, one country attacked another one for no good reason. And I think that, of course, as it has been going on for a year now, and I think people tend to forget, but we cannot forget it because we are losing sometimes up to 100 people a day. And I think this is my message number one is please remember about those uh, victims uh, and uh, please remember that we did nothing to deserve this. And also that if people who are saying that we just want peace, we don't want the escalation. For those people, I want to say, so do we. Trust me, we are the last people who want escalation. But we understand that the only way to establish peace now is unfortunately to win militarily. Um, but in terms of more practical matter is, is of course, weapons. And I know people tend to want to give to humanitarian causes or whatever it kind of is nice and simple and so on and so forth. But unfortunately, sometimes you have to fight for peace. And that is what we're doing. And that is what we are asking everybody else to do as well. Because it's not just our peace that we are fighting for. It's not just our lives that we are fighting for. Uh, it's, it's also the general, you know, the, the international order. Because if, if we lose, it means that no borders matter anymore, right? If they can be so easily violated. But it's also the values that we all share. Um, you know, uh, the, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, Patriarch Kirill, said that uh, this sacred war, as he calls it, uh, has started because uh, uh, Russia couldn't allow for uh, pr- uh, pride uh, parades taking place in Donetsk. Because, you know, that is... Uh, mm. uh, so, so, so this is for you to understand that this is also the, the war for the values that we, we chose to uphold and Russians 
cannot uh, accept that we decided to follow those values. But, but those are the values that Ukrainians and Danes share. We are the same in that matter. So it's not just our country that we are fighting for, it's, it's the values that are all uh, important to, to both Ukrainians and Danes. Tak til Ina Sofsun, parlamentariker, akademiker, mor og borger i Ukraines hovedstad Kiev, som her gav os et indblik i, hvordan det er at have levet nu et år i et land, der er under angreb af en af verdens stærkeste militærmagter. Alle forventer at se en ny offensiv fra russernes side her i foråret. NATO forudser blandt andet nogle ret massive luftangreb på Ukraine i den kommende tid. Det er jo ikke mindst derfor, at den ukrainske præsident igen beder de vestlige lande om at give Ukraine kampfly at forsvare sig med. I øvrigt kom jeg i sidste podcast til at sige, at præsident Zelensky holdt tale i Westminster Abbey, da han var i London. Det var det jo selvfølgelig ikke. Det var en fortællelse fra min side, for det var jo i Westminster Hall i det britiske parlament, at han talte. Jeg beklager, der var topmøde, og vi var lidt trætte i hovedet den dag. Tak fordi du lyttede med på Altingets Europa-podcast i den her uge. Mit navn er Thomas Lauritsen, og det var Magnus Bølund, der redigerede. Tak for i dag. Lyt med igen næste gang, lige her, hvor Altinget taler om Europa. Altingets EU-podcast er sponsoreret af 3F, fordi Danmark fortjener færre journalistik om EU. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.